um, just yesterday I was reading an assignment for seminary and uh, I was struck by these words. It comes from a German theologian, Philip Spainer. He says, the word of God remains the seed from which all that is good in us must grow. If we succeed in getting people to seek eagerly and diligently in the book of life for their joy, their spiritual life will be wonderfully strengthened and they will become altogether different people. It was just like a beautiful way to describe what God's word does in us. If it remains the seed, that is the word of God remains the seed from which all that is good in us must grow. If we succeed in getting people to seek eagerly and diligently in the book of life for their joy, their spiritual life will be wonderfully strengthened and they will become altogether different people. No matter what you do this summer, beyond this summer, a decade from now, 50 years from now, if you keep God's word near you, God's grace will continue to supply your life. Just think about that Psalm 1, even as I was just talking about like the tree planted by streams of water. You want to be like that tree rather than the tree that's out in the desert that has nothing to draw from. So anyway, tonight I want to close our time around Philippians with eight reflections from this wonderful letter of Paul's. So this is not an exclusive list of reflections from the book of Philippians, but rather it's just a compilation I've I've, I've picked out of just eight different reflections, specifically with y'all in mind. So I sat there and I thought, man, there's so many things we could talk about, but here are eight observations, meditations, reflections that I want us to spend time thinking on. A year or two ago, uh, I read this book called Atomic Habits by James Clear. It's not a Christian book. It's just like one of those leadership development books. And the premise of the book was that implementing small habits can lead to significant outcomes over time. What can happen when attempting to create a new habit is that we aim too high and then we immediately fall short. You can think, man, I want to work out more. And so you put this plan into place. You're like, I'm going to run two miles and then I'm going to do 100 push-ups. Then I'm going to do 20 pull-ups and I'm going to do all these things. And then what happens after three days? You're like, dude, this is unattainable. I can't do this. And so you drop the habit. Instead, if you want to work out, it's like, well, maybe like go for a walk and then do 10 push-ups. Or maybe just like start with just doing 10 push-ups, right? But as long as you do it consistently day after day after day, then you form a habit. And then that habit can then be built upon. And so with this tonight, I want these eight reflections to serve as something small that you can grab onto to build the habit of godly living. Just pick one or two of these reflections. Don't feel like you have to respond to or implement each of these reflections right away. Pick one or two and seriously consider how they might change your daily walk with Christ and then just be consistent with it. And I think that's true of any spiritual discipline. If you're thinking, man, I wanna get in the word more. Don't overwhelm yourself and think, man, I've gotta do 45 minutes of intense study this whole next week. Just start with, okay, let me spend five minutes in the word and then five minutes in meditation. Surely I can give 10 minutes and then build from there. So let's go ahead and start with number one. Embrace and enjoy the simplicity of the Christian life. Now, this is the first mistake. I promise, I think it's the only mistake, but on your handout, it says Philippians 1.25. We're actually gonna be looking at verses six through 11. So embrace and enjoy the Christian life. I love what Paul says here when he says that I am sure of this, that he, that is God, who began a good work in you, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace. And then he goes down in verse nine, 
And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. There's this preacher um, out in Indiana. He's originally from Scotland. His name is Alistair Begg. Some of you may have heard of him, but I assume most of you haven't. And he's got this like wonderful accent. And he, he gives this killer illustration about the thief on the cross. So many of you may remember that story, Jesus. There's the thief on the cross who is cursing against God, but then eventually professes faith. And God says, today you'll be with me in paradise. And this pastor, Alistair Begg, he recalls the story of thinking like, man, I would love to have a conversation. I can't wait till I get up there and get to have a conversation with this guy. He says to him, here you were just a moment ago cursing Jesus with the other guy on the cross. You don't know a thing about church membership. You haven't been baptized. You've never even been to a Bible study, but you made it. How did you make it? And then he gets up to the angels at the gates of heaven and the angels at the gates of heaven say, hey, what are you doing here? And he says, well, I don't know. Well, what do you mean you don't know? Well, I don't know. And so the angel goes and gets his supervisor. The supervisor angel comes over and says to him, hey, we just need to ask you a few questions. He says, can you tell me about the doctrine of justification by faith? The man goes, what? What's that? He says, well, how about the doctrine of scripture? He says, no. And then the angel responds to him, on what basis are you here? To which the thief responds, that man on the middle cross said I could come. I was like, oh man. That's a, it's just a poignant story, a poignant illustration that I think sometimes in our head, we can assume we have to have all these things in order to get to heaven. But the one thing that we actually need is to just simply look to Jesus. The simple faith of coming empty-handed and saying, there's something wrong with me. There's something about my sin that keeps me from God. But I know that Jesus on the cross in his death and in his resurrection promises life if I believe in him. And that alone is what saves us. Such that a man who's done wrong his entire life, who literally knows nothing of the Christian faith, but because in a moment he trusts in Christ for his salvation, is immediately at his death taken to be with the Lord. That's why Jesus can say to him, today, not tomorrow, today, you will be with me in paradise. Looking to Jesus alone is the only way we can be saved from hopeless despair. And it's also the only way that we can be saved from our spiritual arrogance that we may have found our way to heaven through our own work or effort. I think here Paul wants us to see clearly that salvation from start to finish is a work of God. And there's so much freedom in that. We can embrace and enjoy the Christian life because the Lord Jesus enables us to and because he will preserve us to the end. Ought we to grow in the knowledge of God and in the practice of spiritual disciplines? Absolutely, by all means. That's why we do things even like midweek because we wanna grow in these things. But I think Paul wouldn't want us to confuse the fruit for the root. 
What I mean by that is that we don't want to make the Christian life more laborious or taxing than Christ intended it to be. Step one is to profess your need of God. And step two is to continue professing your need for God's help. But now, through faith, once you've been united to him, you have his Holy Spirit to help you and to produce fruit in you for the rest of your days. Embrace and enjoy the simplicity of the Christian life by concerning yourself with joy in God and progress with the help of his spirit, even as chapter 1, verse 25 says. Number two, look at your suffering as a gift of grace rather than a circumstance to be avoided at all costs. Look down at chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. So we see here that Paul, again, writing from prison, says to this church, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Look at verse 18. What then, in response to these people who are proclaiming Christ, even out of selfish ambition, he says only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Paul rejoices that through his own imprisonment, the gospel has spread. We can be certain that when saints suffer for the gospel and persevere, the gospel will advance. That's what we see happen over and over and over again in the scriptures that when Christians suffer for the sake of the gospel and they respond with perseverance, with endurance, with joy in God, it creates a compelling witness that then advances the gospel even more. Perhaps one of the most difficult aspects of the Christian life is believing in a paradox. Everything in us wants to respond and react against anything that seems like a contradiction. And I think especially so in a post-enlightenment age where all of us, whether we realize it or not, are influenced by reason. Every single one of us assume that reason is the highest priority in the human life. If I can't make something reasonable in my mind, then it must not be so, or it can't be real, right? To say that weakness or pain or suffering is good or even preferable for the Christian seems on face value like a contradiction, right? It doesn't make sense. So how do we look to our suffering as a gift of God's grace by which he refines us, by which he strips us of our idols, by which he builds our dependence upon him? Well, one thing we can do is to pray. Just as Paul often did for the churches that he wrote his letters to, he prays for their spiritual strength. He prays that they would have endurance. He prays that they would be able to experience full knowledge of God So that in knowing God, they would know that even in suffering, God has brought them there in his wisdom and in his providence for a specific purpose, whether they're able to discern what that purpose is or not yet. I love the opening prayer of the Valley of Vision. If you haven't heard of or don't have a copy of it, I would encourage you. It's just called the Valley of Vision. It's a book full of Puritan prayers. So each page is just a new prayer. And there are wonderful ways to spend 30 seconds praying to the Lord I don't know about y'all, but there's many times when I sit down to pray and I just don't have the words or my mind is scattered and having something to kind of guide me is super helpful. So anyway, the opening prayer of that, that prayer book, Valley of Vision, says this, Lord, let me learn by paradox that the way down is the way up, that to be low is to be high, that the broken heart is the healed heart, that the contrite heart is the rejoicing spirit, that the repenting soul is the victorious soul, 
That to have nothing is to possess everything. That to bear the cross is to wear the crown. That to give is to receive. That the valley is the place of vision. Let me find thy light in my darkness, thy life in my death, thy joy in my sorrow, thy grace in my sin, thy riches in my poverty, thy glory in my value. Valley. We need to pray to the Lord to ask for his help. Because when those challenging circumstances of suffering hit, it's going to be really difficult to feel like this is a gift from God or something that can be used for good. But if you ever see some older saints or those who have been walking with the Lord for decades, you can see this in them. There's this circumstance that's hit them and just in conversation, you're like, you seem completely unfazed. What's up with that? (laughs) Or you see someone who's been through the valley a number of times and has come out to the other side and you just see they have this like calm, this comfort on their face, this resolute trust that God is both good and wise and that he's ordered even this difficult circumstance for my good and for, who knows, the spread of the gospel in other ways. And so that's what we're aiming for. That's what we want to grow in. That's what Paul longed for in this church in Philippi, for them to see that no matter their circumstance, the Lord uses it for his own good purposes. Number three, obey God. That one took a lot of originality to come up with. It may seem like it goes without saying, but I think a a third worthwhile reflection from this book is that we ought to be obedient. Again, Paul is writing to this context of those who were Roman citizens. And so they would have to wrestle between where does my allegiance, where does my identity lie? And he wants to remind them over and over and over again, this word obey, it comes up often in the book. Just look down at chapter two, verses 12 and 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That Christian even commanded to obey implies that even in our regenerate state, that is a state that has been saved by God, we are still prone to disobey. So we should ask ourselves, in what ways am I being disobedient to God? That should be a regular question that's on our mind. A regular question that the person that you meet with for accountability, you ask them. Like, hey, help me think through ways that I'm being disobedient to God. Do I cheat on tests or homework or at work to get ahead? Do I look at pornography to gratify my flesh? Am I gossiping about someone I don't like in order to justify my dislike of them? Am I allowing discontentment to fester and lead me to believe that I am to be angry, upset, or bitter? Do I idolize my work, my spouse, or significant other, my goals, or my money, such that should I lose any of these things, I'd be absolutely devastated? Is my life marked by coveting my neighbor's boyfriend or girlfriend or car or job or lifestyle or reputation? Those are the types of just diagnostic questions to ask. Pinpoint what is it that my heart goes to. What ways of disobedience am I more prone to than others? Even as I read those questions, I'm sure some stuck out more than others. Find a trusted brother or sister and confess your sin. 
and ask for help. Even now, as you sit and listen, it can be tempting to hear one of those questions and think, man, yeah, maybe that one hit me, but I'm just going to not think about it. Maybe it'll just go away. Maybe I just, yeah, it'll be fine. Don't do that. Find someone that you trust and confess that as sin to them. Satan works by feeding us a lie. It goes like this. Should I, should I tell about this sin or should my sin come out, my shame or embarrassment will be too great to bear. I promise you that that is indeed a lie. Similar to the point that we just talked about on paradox. Confessing your sin will actually relieve you of your guilt and shame and God's grace will be as sweet as Not because the act of confessing has any power in and of itself, but because in confessing your sin, you are admitting to God that you are dependent upon him for forgiveness. And just like the father of the prodigal son welcomed him home, our God, our loving father, will receive you with love. You can imagine that prodigal son, all that he had done, squandering half of his father's wealth, engaged in all kinds of sin. You think he wanted to go back and see his dad? There's no way. But he disciplined himself and got to that point and the father received him in love. If we're going to be serious about our obedience to God, if we're going to be serious about not only obeying in his presence, but also in his absence, meaning with lives of integrity, then we have to confess sin. And the assurance, the good news is given in verse 13 that it is God who works in us both to will and to work to his good pleasure. How those things work out, human responsibility and divine sovereignty is a little bit of a mystery, but the reality is is that we have assurance that God is going to sanctify us, but we also have to obey. We have to be faithful. And that's what Paul was calling the Philippians to. Number four, An inventory of your time and money and priorities will reveal who you serve. An inventory of your time and priorities and money reveals who you serve. Look down at chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. Paul says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side, faith of the gospel. And then look over at chapter 3, verses 17 through chapter 4, verse 1. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you, even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Now you may remember from back when we studied chapter one, that verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy, is actually in the Greek better translated as live as citizens 
whose lives are worthy. And so he's here saying that you are to live as citizens of the kingdom of God. Your life should reflect that type of citizenship. And we see that again in chapter 3, verse 20. So what does it mean? It means that in Christ, we have become a new creation with new values and priorities. What it means to be in Christ is to be indwelt by God's Holy Spirit, which creates new affections in our heart. So these new affections should be apparent. It should be obvious in the way that we do live, in the way that we prioritize our resources, prioritize our time, how we spend our talents. So imagine you're standing in a city center in London. Behind you, you hear a couple talking in French. To your left, you hear a man on the phone in German. It'd be pretty safe to assume that these people are from France and Germany, respectively, right? The citizenship of these people becomes obvious by their language. So what language does the world hear coming from you? When that person stands there and they see you or they listen to you, to use that illustration, what comes out? Can they clearly identify? Oh yeah, this person's speaking German, so they're from Germany. Oh, this person walks, talks, acts, speaks like a Christian, so they must belong to the kingdom of God. Or would they not guess that? <laughs> That's the question we have to ask ourselves and one of the questions that Paul was probing the Philippians with. One practical way that I think we can grow in living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, this is a little bit morbid, so bear with me, but is to think about death, okay? So one practical way that we can grow in living as citizens of the kingdom of heaven is to think about death. As Christians, we know death is not an enemy. It's a powerless weapon that has been defeated by the Lord Jesus when he rose from the grave. But when we reflect on our own mortality, we remind ourselves that we exist for one purpose, to glorify God through loving him and loving others. So if you were to die today, would you be pleased to give God an account of how you have lived the last two weeks or the last week? If you were to die today, tonight, in your sleep, you were to stand before the Lord and to give an account for how you spent your time, your money, your resources, everything for the last week, would you be pleased with the account that you could offer to God? Reflecting on that type of question, though a little bit freaky at times, does keep us grounded. It helps keep us reminded that as citizens of the kingdom of God, we're obligated to live in a certain way. We're obligated to use our time, our talents, our treasures in specific ways that are in accord with the way that the scriptures would have us live. I uh, heard a funny story from John Piper one time. He said that oftentimes when he was going to bed, he would just put his two fingers right here, listen to his pulse, or feel his pulse rather. And he would have this thought in his mind. He said at any moment, the Lord could stop that blood from running through those veins. And he said it was just like a weird kind of morbid discipline that he developed. One of those weird things, even as we were talking about earlier, like looking at towels or whatever, that can help you think like, man, okay, yeah, I'm, the blood that's literally coursing through my veins is coursing under God's providence. And at any moment, it could stop. Just this last week, um, there was a funeral for a guy that I knew when I was an intern at CHBC. He was 30 years old. 
in the f- most fit shape of his life. He had joined the, the Navy and um, had been kind of all over and just graduated from the Naval Academy in D.C. and then had been off doing some training in Hawaii and 30 years old, like I said, most fit shape of his life, died in a training accident. It's just like, gosh, that's sobering, you know? I think as young people, it's easy for us to assume that we're immortal. Oh, those types of things, they don't happen to us. But it's very real. And at any moment, we have to be able and willing to give an account to God. Number five, present yourself as a visible model and example to others. So in chapter two, verses 19 through 30, I would encourage you to go back, read, reflect, think, how am I living a life like Timothy? How am I living a life like Epaphroditus? Again, that's another great name. Add to your child list, Epaphroditus. But these are like wonderful examples. If you see the way that Paul talks about them, it's kind of convicting. It's like, man, I I hope that others could say the same thing about me. And I hope that it's been apparent throughout this whole book of Philippians that Paul is concerned with showing that the Christian life consists not just in having the right doctrine, but in also having the right practice. If you can confess all the right things with your mouth, but you're not loving your neighbor or you're not being an example that others can actually follow, then your religion is worthless, right? Because right doctrine that affects your heart will bleed out into right practice, which is why Paul emphasizes this over and over and over again. That's why we see the example of these two brothers in uh, chapter 2, verses 19 through 30. And so too in chapter 3, verses 12 through 17, we see Paul set his own life before the church as an example to follow. And even that we are to keep our eyes on those who walk according to a faithful example. God has ordered the Christian life to consist in looking to the example of other Christians. Jesus lived his own life in front of others so that they could follow him, so that they could emulate him. This is something I was, I was hanging out with Parker Lepetska earlier today, and I was just lamenting and feeling even conviction about that some of how things are ordered in America, uh, just, just everything feels so corporate. Like back in that day, it was a lot easier to live this type of life where people were in your homes regularly. They were with you whenever you were working your trade, going out to sea or working as a carpenter or doing things around the home, whatever it was, it was easier to bring people into your life. We have to be so much more intentional about bringing people into our lives to help them see us outside of a church context, to see us outside of a professional context. But if we don't do that, then we're really just displaying kind of the doctrinal side of Christianity. We want others to see the messes. We want others to see the difficulties. We want other people to see the anger that comes up when someone cuts you off in traffic, you know? Because these are areas of growth and we want everyone to recognize that we're human, right? So I would encourage you, invite people into your lives. What about you? Are you living, are you currently living a life that's worthy of following? We should be able to orient our lives so that we can say with Paul, brothers and sisters, join in imitating me. Could you say that? Anybody be willing to come up here and confidently say, hey, that's me. Join in imitating me. Not in a prideful sort of way, but just in a, man, I'm faithfully seeking to follow the Lord. Come on, join, imitate me. I wish that every Christian spent their money like me. I can confidently say that I wish every Christian spent their time like me. I wish that every Christian had the same priorities that I do. 
I wish that other Christians valued things the same way that I do. Those are, again, humbling, difficult questions to ask. But I think Paul, over and again in Philippians, is showing us that part of the way that the Lord has ordered the Christian life is, yes, receive the right teaching. He's going to go after the dogs, as we'll see here in just a minute. But he also wants us to live lives that are worthy of imitating, to have lives of integrity, to be consistently asking ourselves, I'm going to mess up. I'm going to make mistakes. I'm, it, I'm still going to sin. But overall, there's this trajectory of faithfulness that I'm seeking. And so I'm glad for others to join in and follow me. Sixth, beware who influences you and teaches you. So if we look at chapter three, verses one through six, we see here that Paul calls out these dogs. I don't know about y'all, but I don't like, I probably wouldn't like being called a dog. He calls these, these, these false teachers dogs because they were requiring circumcision for salvation for these Gentile believers. So they're essentially saying, because you're Gentiles and because you're not circumcised, you cannot have access to God. They were saying that faith alone in Christ, even as we sang, in Christ alone, my hope is found. The, the, these Jewish dogs were coming in and saying, we don't believe that. This hymn hasn't yet been written, but it's not in Christ alone. It's in Christ alone plus this, plus this thing, right? Which is why Paul goes after them. In our modern context, that would be like me standing up here and saying, believe in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, but it won't be complete until you present your perfect attendance card at church. So the next time honey comes in or Abigail comes in, I say, all right, where's the perfect attendance card? If you don't have it, you're not saved. Believe in the Lord Jesus for your salvation, but it won't be complete until you present your giving statement or a Bible verse in your Instagram bio. Obviously, these types of works are just a fruit of the gospel, but they're not the gospel itself. In the moment that we require anything for salvation other than the empty hands of faith is the moment we rest upon our ability to save ourselves rather than wholly trusting in God. And I think we do this more than we realize. On one end, we live in perpetual guilt and shame because even though we know we belong to God, we feel like we're never doing enough. And so we think, oh, okay, I need to work myself up a little bit more. I need to do these good things or I need to go to church. I need to do this stuff. But we have confidence that if we belong to God, again, it is he who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Philippians chapter two, verse 13. By all means, we must pursue righteousness in living, but we must never forget that even our righteous deeds, those things that we do that are good and pleasing to the Lord, those things that are evidence of fruit and evidence of salvation, those things that are uh, offered as obedience to God have been prepared before the foundation of the world so that we would walk in them, Ephesians 2.10. That's a humbling verse. Paul says that it is by grace alone you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. And then he goes on to say that there are these good works that have been prepared beforehand, before the foundation of the world, so that, again, purpose, so that you would walk in them. Even the good works that we have, God has prepared before the foundation of the world. So we have no room to boast in the presence of God. You are not alone responsible for righteous living. We must seek communion with God and to love him more and more. And then his spirit will produce in us the fruits of good works, life. That's, that right there, 
oh my gosh, so much paper and ink has been spilt over that discussion in church history. What is the relationship between works and faith? And I think the clear teaching of Scripture and the clear affirmation of the church is that when we recognize in our sin that there is nothing in us that is pleasing to God, that everything we do, even our good deeds that we think are good, are as filthy rags before the Lord, and that there's only one person who is completely righteous, there was only one person who actually can work through his death on the cross to save us, when we place our faith in that one, those empty hands saying, I can't do it, I have to trust in him, what happens then is that the Lord saves us, opens our eyes, he fills us with his spirit, and then it's that spirit that produces fruit in our lives. This is where we come into conversations like, oh, well, then that just means you can live however you want and then figure it out. Well, that's just evidence that, again, it's probably not the spirit that's actually working in you, at least the spirit of God that is. Because the true spirit of God will produce in you desire to follow him, desire to obey. These fruits of the spirit, joy, peace, patience, kindness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And then how those things work themselves out is we seek to faithfully obey God while he's doing it in us. Again, there's a little bit of mystery there, but our responsibility is just to be faithful, to trust the Lord, to ask for his help, to carry on in the Christian life. Now, teaching that threatens the gospel as we were just talking about, like adding works to our salvation is the most important teaching to be aware of as Paul shows us here. But there's also a plethora of bad teaching in our world that I think threatens our discipleship that we should be aware of. So beware the dogs of Instagram and TikTok, which seek to devour your contentment, your godly expectations, and your pure mind. Beware the dogs of Netflix, working out at the gym, or fill in your favorite hobby, which seek to devour your belief that Christ is sufficient and that no substance of this world can satisfy you apart from him. Beware the dogs of grades, achievement at work, reputation, or approval of others which seek to devour your sense of worth in Christ, your fear of God alone, and your godly humility. Beware the dogs of laziness and gluttony and idleness which seek to devour your spiritual disciplines and godly work ethic. Beware the dogs of pornography and second glances which seek to devour your purity and self-control. Beware the dogs of this world sent by Satan to attack the vulnerable places of your faith. Friends, there are a lot of dogs out there seeking to devour us, sent by Satan, knowing exactly what you struggle with, knowing exactly where to attack you. And we must always be on guard. On guard against anything that threatens the gospel, but also against anything that's going to threaten our discipleship anything that's going to threaten our walk with the Lord. And the most, the most hurtful thing that you can do is that when you feel it, when you know that a dog is seeking to come and devour, but you just kind of push it away and assume that, oh, that's not that big of a deal. Or like, I know that this is probably an issue, but uh, it's going to be fine. Like, it's not really ripping into me yet. It's just kind of nipping at me. The moment you indulge that, the moment you allow that any space, that's the moment it has a foothold on you. So we have to be quick 
to push that away, to see that this is actually coming to devour me, to destroy me, to keep me from following the Lord as he would require. Number seven, strive to learn the secret of contentment. We saw this just last week in chapter four, verses 10 through 13, that Paul rejoices that this church is concerned for him. But then he also talks about how he, um, he talks about how he's experienced both good and bad. He's experienced highs and lows. He's experienced all these circumstances in life. And he has learned the secret of contentment because he has disciplined himself to look not to outside things to give him peace, but to God alone. Remember, contentment comes not from getting something outside of yourself, but from purging something from inside. Again, contentment, that is true godly contentment, does not come from getting something outside of yourself and bringing it in, but from purging something inside yourself. In other words, oftentimes when we're discontent, it's because we think that we lack something. If I just had this, I would be content. If I just obtained this thing, I would be content. Oh, if this were just different, I would be content. So the fallacy is, is that contentment is because I lack something outside of me that if I were to have it, I'd be content. But the reality is, is that actually contentment comes when we purge from within us those sinful desires and recognize that in God alone, whether I'm high or whether I'm low, whether I'm in difficult circumstance or great circumstance, I have God. And we have assurance that chapter four, verse 19, God will supply every need of ours in Christ Jesus. And again, that operative phrase there is in Christ Jesus, not in other things. And the only way that we can really find the secret of contentment is by looking to Jesus. So let's go ahead and end our time by meditating for a few minutes on the beauty, the wonder, the glory, and so much more of looking to Jesus. This is where Paul leads us. This is the the kind of hinge of the whole letter, that hymn in chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, this, this wonderful passage where Paul shows us the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I assume that most of you probably drove here, and if you were to leave this place, to go out to your car, you grab your keys, fortunately I don't have my keys on me, but you try to insert your house key into your ignition and start it up, what's going to happen? It's going to be bad news. It's going to jam it up or it might slide in, but your car's not going to start. I hate to break it to you, right? So the trouble is, is that you don't have the right key to make everything work. Similarly, trying to live the Christian life apart from looking to Jesus is a lot like trying to start a car with a house key. Everything Paul desires for the Philippians and for us is impossible apart from their and our ability to truly grasp the example of Jesus Christ as laid out in chapter two, verses five through 11. Paul here, after giving them commands to consider the interest of others rather than the interest of themselves, says that they are to have this mind among themselves, which is theirs in Christ Jesus. Verse six, who Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Let's look at four, four specific actions of Jesus here. First, Though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing, a thing to be grasped. Verse 7, he emptied himself. Later on in verse 7, by taking the form of a servant and being born as a human. 
Verse eight, being found in human form, he then humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Though Jesus is God, he did not use his divinity to his advantage. Put differently, it was not something Jesus seized upon to his own advantage. Jesus was entirely selfless in his human ministry. And by way of reminder, going back to this passage, Jesus' emptying of himself is not an emptying of his divinity, but rather a putting on of human flesh. In other words, because Jesus is very God, the act of putting on lowly human flesh is a type of humble emptying. The text makes this idea clear with the ground clause that we see there by in the middle of verse 7. It says that he emptied himself by ground taking the form of a servant, being born as a human. The divine love of God finds its expression in God himself taking on flesh for the sake of a rebellious people. But again, it doesn't just stop there. It doesn't just stop with God taking on flesh if that was not humble enough. But it continues and finds its its fullest expression in going to a cross. Paul wants the Philippians to see the clearest contrast imaginable here. Not only God being as separate as he is from humanity, not only did God become human in Jesus Christ, God the Son incarnate, but then God hung on a cross. One of the most heinous ways, humiliating, painful, excruciating ways to die. So for the Philippians especially, I mean, like, we're not, like, I think both Jesus and the idea of a cross, those are ideas that have become so domesticated in our minds. We see pictures of Jesus with his blonde hair and his blue eyes. We have this idea of what Jesus is like. We hear Jesus talked about all the time. But we have to reckon with the reality. Jesus is not just this guy in a storybook. He's not just this guy who is a part of history, though he is those things. Jesus is God. God himself the one by whom and through whom all things are created, Colossians 1.15. The one who before the foundation of the earth, through all eternity, enjoyed perfect communion with God. That's who Jesus is. In this cross, we see it in necklaces, we see it in pictures, we see it everywhere. Like, it was an offensive symbol to those in the first century. They wouldn't have just seen it as, oh, that's a cute little tattoo you got there. Like, no, like, this is a serious, offensive, grotesque, Symbol. So again, these two things, God himself hanging on a Roman cross, that is the greatest picture of love and humility that the world could ever see. Why in the world would someone like that go to a cross? And it's because his immense love for his people. So that in spilling out his blood, he could purchase a people back for himself so that a people who rebelled against him, so that a people who were opposed to God in every way, those who were enemies of God could be reconciled through Jesus Christ. God loves his his people so much that he was willing to go to that links, those links to bring them back. And so you wonder, it's like, okay, well, why does Paul put this, that example, this gospel illustration here in the middle of this book. Well, he's showing us that we in Christ have the mind of Christ and that through his spirit have the strength to exhibit the same type of example. If we're gonna be faithful at all to do anything that Paul says here in the book of Philippians, if we're gonna be faithful to 
do any of these things, to embrace and enjoy the Christian life, to look at our suffering as a gift of grace, to obey God, to find an inventory of our time, to present ourselves as a model and example to others, to have discernment about what we're taking in, learn the secret of contentment. The only way that we're gonna be able to do that is by looking to the humble example of Christ and by praying for God's help to exhibit that same humility in ourselves. By looking to Jesus, we have faith. By looking to Jesus, we see God. By looking to Jesus, we have an example. By looking to Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit, which produces fruit in our lives. By looking to Jesus, we can endure in the Christian life. By looking to Jesus, we will persevere to the end. When tempted to look to yourself, when tempted to look to the world, when tempted to look anywhere outside of Jesus, look to Jesus, the founder and finisher of your faith, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. If only you will look to Jesus, you will find a friend more loyal than all others. You will find a brother more caring than all others. You will find a servant more selfless than all others. You will find a king more glorious than all others. And you will find a savior all sufficient. If you take away one thing from our time in Philippians this last semester, take that away. Look to Jesus. Through faith in him and with the help of the spirit he gives, you can live a life worthy in God's eyes. But it only comes through Jesus. All of these things apart from Christ just feel like weight that are added onto your shoulders. Everything that we've even talked about just tonight, if you're thinking to yourself, I'm gonna do that on my own or I'm gonna develop a checklist to get this done, if you're doing that apart from Christ, oh man, you're gonna feel so burdened. But if instead you look to Jesus and say, wow, his yoke is easy, his burden is light, I can cast my cares upon him. I can, in faith, trust that he is working these things inside of me. Man, you're gonna experience a lot of joy in the Christian life. You're, as Paul says in chapter one, verse 25, gonna experience progress in the faith. You're gonna experience joy in the faith. But it has to come through Christ. Paul wants us to see here at the heart, here at the heart of the Christian life, here at the heart of living is looking to Jesus. Let's pray. Oh God, we confess that we are prone to look to ourselves rather than you. So God, by your spirit, would you help build within us a dependence upon you that causes us to look to you and to you alone. God, with your help, we pray for this type of faith even now. In Christ's name, amen.